The Pinball Network is online. Launching The Pinball Show. Pinball is a game of skill. For some, it's a passion and a lifestyle. It's time for the Pinball Show. It's pinball with personality. Welcome to the Pinball Show interview series. I'm your host, Matt Morrison, and this is episode seven. Everyone has a dream theme list. Maybe you keep it in the back of your mind or in a Google Doc file or with your dealer on an interested list. Rush was at the top of my personal list for a music-themed pinball machine. The best part of music pins is just that, the music. But balancing that with a fun layout, deep rules, lights, call-outs, and sound effects is no easy task. But the team at Stern Pinball has done just that. I sat down with sound engineer Bob Baffey, who has taken on this near-impossible task. And we talk about his history in gaming, his role on Rush, and his work on previous Stern titles. So without further ado, Mr. Bob Baffey. Well, welcome to the Pinball Network's The Pinball Show interview series. I'm your host, Matt Morrison. And today on the show, we've got a great guest. Uh, his name's Bob Baffey. How are you doing today, Bob? I'm good. How are you doing? Very well. And uh, just to give everybody a quick overview of kind of where you've been and what you've done. Absolutely. So uh, traditionally, I'm a, a video game a composer and sound designer and sometimes programmer. Uh, I've been in the industry for over 20 years now. And, uh, started working on Game Boy Color uh, that far back. And some systems like uh, Super Nintendo, PS1, 2, 3, 4 consoles, PC, all that kind of stuff, but mainly focusing on uh, the video game side until I started working with Stern. Yeah, I was looking through uh, kind of your, your resume and uh, some of the stuff you'd worked on, and I was I was blown away having uh, Game Boy Color and PS1 on there. What Super Nintendo stuff did you do? Uh, that was, I worked for a company called Digital Eclipse, and they did a lot of the early emulation stuff for companies like Midway and Konami. And so I think the Super Nintendo stuff I worked on were some of the collections. And it might have been even N64 that that really got a wide release on. But it was like uh, Defender, Robotron, those kind of collections. And mainly for those, it was just making sure that the emulations played the sounds correctly 
as well as maybe doing some music for the the menus and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. I do remember um, like a midway compilation for the, the SNES. So that's really, really cool. I grew up, you know, in that era of those home consoles. So I'm very familiar with with that. And, and obviously, you know, when you're talking about Konami or, you know, it goes back to the early Metal Gear games as well as the one on PS1 and uh, a lot of great memories with just that. Speaking of emulation, I, I can remember playing like early PC emulators of like NES games and sometimes the sound would be off or, you know, things wouldn't line up. So I could see how porting those over to another system, you know, could have its problems. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge and, and they've gotten so much better now. And I'm, I'm actually still working with Digital Eclipse. They actually rebooted that brand and they're doing, I would kind of, they, they call them museum quality where they're working with publishers, again, like Konami and Capcom. They're re-releasing these these collections. They did uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was the Capcom collection. They worked on um, a Street Fighter re-release. Yep, the um, 30th anniversary one. Yeah, I think I have that yeah. on Switch. Yeah, and that was really fun because I, you get to go through some of the history, and, and luckily some of these companies are opening up their archives to companies like Digital Eclipse. And I'm lucky enough when they have those things to get uh, original music or notes from composers. Sometimes it's in Japanese, so we have to get it translated and it's, you know, a little odd to follow certain things, but it's really fun. And, and they just pack that into these projects, which are just a labor of love. So it's, it's fun to be a part of that. Yeah, that looks awesome. I, and I noticed they re, when they re-release Medieval, the, the PS1 game, I always loved it and I, I always felt like it didn't get enough credit and they remastered it. What was it like? porting that over. I mean, that's almost like a brand new game really. So yeah, that was fun. That My role on that was a little bit different because we had the support of Sony, which was so great because I basically took advantage of their entire audio department. Wow. And uh, my role on that game was we were uh, using the Unreal Engine to port this um, and just rebuilding it from scratch. And so I was building a, a lot of the, the music systems, at least how they they played in the game and footstep systems and animation kind of things like that that Unreal didn't necessarily provide. Just kind of almost sitting back and, and watching all the talented people uh, at Sony. I think it was Santa Monica Studio. Was, uh, it was just amazing. They, they have like, you know, unlike my home studio, they have a whole Foley stage where they were doing uh, specific zombie sounds for the game <laughs> and uh, they went to Prague, I believe, and recorded uh, or orchestration. I couldn't make it, which I, I'm still kicking myself. It was right before COVID oh. hit. And I was thinking, well, there'll be another opportunity for me to go out there. And my, my son had something going on. And I was, I was like, well, I won't be able to go this time. And of course, now I haven't gotten another opportunity, but they recorded a full orchestra there. It was, it was just amazing. The whole project was great. Yeah. And I think Sony Santa Monica, they're pretty famous for, um, I can't remember if it was the Uncharted games they did some of the sound on, or even maybe the God of War. Definitely God okay. of War, yeah. I, I knew it was one yeah. of the two, and man, what a what a sound package those games have. I mean, especially, I remember the second one, you know, just being super epic. So I'm sure that was an experience working with that team. Yeah, getting, uh, and in fact, I, I did get to work with several of, uh, of these guys who just jumped off of uh, the latest God of War, so hearing uh, their stories and some of their trips to go field recording are pretty amazing. Yeah, uh, they kind of rebooted that series with the Norse mythology. And man, you know, reboots, a lot of times you're like, oh boy, they're just going to drag this thing out forever. But it was a phenomenal <laughs> game. Really, really good reboot. 
Yeah, yeah, I love that one. So yeah, we're working, and then being able to work on that game with Sony, it's just like a, you can have good and bad experiences with large companies. That's obviously true in any kind of industry, but that project was just so great, and Sony was uh, fantastic. That's really cool. Um, well, while we're on video games, even though this isn't a video game podcast, uh, a lot of our yeah. listeners dabble in both. Uh, what do you think about the you know Microsoft acquiring Activision and and uh, God, who knows how many other brands at the same time? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic on it, a little bit concerned just because that kind of consolidation is, can be worrisome. I've been working on a Microsoft project and a project through an Activision company. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. I, I suspect that they'll be mostly hands off at first, <laughs> right? And just kind of let things happen. But yeah, then after that, it's anybody's guess. I, I mean, there's good and bad things that can happen from that. But like I said, I, I'm just kind of optimistic that it might fix some of the things that Activision was dealing with. And my experience with Microsoft is, is you know, they're a huge company and it's a lot of moving parts, but they, they generally treat uh, their employees well, at least in the, the game division with the people I've talked to. So right. hopefully that pans out. You know, their commitment to that brand, the Xbox brand is especially, I remember in the early days of Xbox Live, um, they were really pushing that. They were trying to get that market share and they they were, my brother was a huge, huge uh, sports gamer and won a lot of tournaments and actually flew him to the all-star game and uh, play. He played in front of like Dan Patrick for the like championship final. You know, it was almost like a back in the day when Nintendo would do the world championships. It was really something. So oh, that's great. Yeah. It's super cool. And you know, it, it's, it amazes me that even though Sony kind of won, I guess maybe what some people would consider the last console battle, but you know, they're, they're not giving up for sure, especially acquiring goes blizzard was the other big one they, they got right. Really interesting stuff. I kind of came out of left field for me, but you may have had insight into that <laughs> already. I, I knew nothing about wow. it. And a lot of the people that I thought would know something about it, knew nothing about it. So they did a very good job of keeping that mostly quiet. Wow. So that kind of leads us into one part of your, your resume. I saw, you know, you, there was some rock band games on there, like Wii ports and the PSP one. Have you always kind of started gravitating more towards the, the music based, whether it be pinball or software? Is that something that just kind of fell in your lap? That It's an interesting story because that fell into our laps where that was at Backbone Entertainment. They were looking for a company that could, we had done some stuff on uh the PlayStation Portable, we'd done Death Jr. It was an original game that Konami published for us. And so we had a, a really good idea of the uh, PSP hardware, audio, graphics, all of it. So Harmonix had approached us to see how we would do a handheld version because they didn't really think that they could do Rock Band on there with streaming multiple tracks of audio and some of the other technical limitations. We ended up getting it done, and I think we did a great job. It was it was something that uh, was unlike what I had worked on there. It was I would say that was my first real music game. But the the interesting part of this story is that one of the main engineers who worked with me to kind of build this handheld version of the uh, what they call the gem system of how they put the gems down on the lane was uh, Tanyo. Clikes. No kidding. And so that might be a good lead into how I got hooked up with Stern. <laughs> because that's, that's next on our itinerary, really. Uh, so how did you get the gig with Stern? Well, Tanya was, I know, was talking about with Stern when he, when he got there. 
expanding on their music uh, and audio system. So traditionally, like now in video games, everything is really uh, dynamic in terms of audio. There's a lot of middleware that uh, allows you to create a game that's, I'll say, musically aware. That means that the game can know what the uh, beats per minute of a song is. It can know where there's measure changes. It can know um, what beat it's on. It, it can even know the key and the pitch of you know certain tracks or melodies that are playing. Tanya had the idea, as I understand it, I'm kind of speaking for him here, but to kind of bring some of that into uh, the Stern system. And since we had worked on Unplugged, a rock band Unplugged for PSP, he knew I had experience with these systems, creating these systems where you uh, kind of make the game aware, uh, musically aware. So he asked if I'd be interested on uh, working on a system for that, and that coincided with working on Kiss. Ah, very cool. Yeah. And I, I think Tanya is a guitar player as well, maybe, uh, if I remember correctly. Well, not going back to video games, just for a moment, there's a there's a guitar learning game called Rocksmith. It, you know, you could plug a real guitar into your Xbox, and I always wondered how that system operated. Maybe it's similar and uh, tracking the notes, you know, uh, coming out of a guitar into, uh, you know, a, an Xbox or a PS4 or whatever. Yeah, that was a uh, that was an Ubisoft, Ubisoft title, right. I think. And the funny thing is, is I never, I remember hearing about it and then I never, I never tried it out. So I never got to see exactly how it worked. Yeah. It's, um, it's pretty neat. Um, I would say if your guitar is not intonated very well, I'd seen some issues with that, but I mean, for the most part, it, it works very well and it's able to slow the track down and, and, and help you learn that way. But, uh, I don't know if it was very, if it sold very well, it, it always seemed like it was kind of on the back burner, you would you would see it on fire cells, you know, more often than not sometimes. But I, I thought it was it was a pretty neat piece of software. I love the idea of it. And the unfortunate thing is it just may have been a little bit too late in that in that whole, you know, game music kind of uh, yeah. I don't want to say bubble, but like Hill, you know, rock band and uh, they, they were throwing so much money, uh, both Guitar Hero harmonics. I mean, the the amount of money that harmonics had to spend on that Beatles rock band game was crazy. <laughs> uh, not to mention all the labels, you know, they, if you think about back at that time, it, but before it was before Spotify, before streaming really took off. So the record companies and these labels were sitting on masters of all these, these bands and really not making great money. Everybody's stealing music, mm -hmm. you know, CD sales are down and this game comes out where, they're going to make a profit on licensing these masters and getting a profit every time they sell a copy of these songs on the rock band network. So I think they ramped up just too much. And then everybody got sick of, you know, storing plastic guitars and drum sets <laughs> in the apartments and houses. Yeah. Yeah. But man, you're right. It was almost maybe a bubble of some kind because that, that stuff was everywhere, you know, for a good bit. And then you, you would see it traded in and kind of hanging around secondhand. But as you were saying, uh, you came on board, I guess, in into Kiss. So, so what did you do in the development of of that game? That was a uh, a trial by fire. I was working with Lonnie, and uh, you know, we were developing this system where I could take uh, wave files and generate data that we needed to, you know, tell the machine when certain musical events happened. But I was also learning the beginning. Uh, the language of pinball and pinball sound. So 
I did do the sound package on there, but I had plenty of help from people to uh, kind of push me along and nudge me in the right direction, thankfully, because it was, uh, I had a lot of experience by that point, but uh, pinball was a whole new thing for me. Right. And I guess, how would you explain integrating that that piece of software into Spike 2? Was, was that really difficult, uh, being like a, a separate type of controller than, than maybe what you're used to on, on consoles or PC? It wasn't too bad, that experience with with the rock band stuff. And of course, Tanya pretty much already knew what he wanted to do. And, and the first time I talked to him about this, we were already on the same page of it. It was just a matter of figuring out how we were going to do it and then uh, writing the code for it. But that came together pretty quickly. And it's something that's still being developed and expanded on. For example, on Led Zeppelin, I think and we could get this in detail later, but I, I believe Tim uh, Sexton mentioned a uh, talk he did that we've kind of added pitch awareness a little bit to to certain things where we play sound effects that are technically in key to the song you're playing. And there's a lot of cool stuff just incrementally coming online. And really, it's about budget, time. The tech stuff's already solved almost, except for making sure it all fits in terms of running the game, playing sound, playing video, and tracking all this stuff, basically running that all at the same time. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So with KISS, you're working with uh, Lonnie and with some other people kind of chiming in here and there. Outside of of integrating that uh, software package and, and getting all that laid out, did you find it difficult, you know, to come up with the rest of the sound effects? And I guess one thing maybe our our listeners should understand is that you, you can also really code, like, you know, you just don't create sound effects. You can, you can implement, you know, this software we're talking about, I guess you probably wrote most of the code for it as well. Uh, on those and the pinball games, I've specifically been a little bit hands-off, not, not in terms of, uh, of implementing, but of actually writing code. I've I've stayed away from there. I've kind of stayed on the systems and tools side. Uh-huh. I that might change. I don't know if they really want <laughs> me to get that involved. But yeah, I mean my my background when I started doing Game Boy Color games, uh the the first game I worked on was NFL Blitz for the Game Boy Color and I just to give you a idea of what a kind of wild west time it was, my partner programmed most of the code and I did the graphics. The, the sound was kind of a uh, a side effect of everything. I did the art and I did a lot of tools. And then I programmed uh, 1942 for the Game Boy Color. It's an old Capcom arcade game. Um, yeah, I did that entire thing myself on the Game Boy Color, which is was a nightmare. So I wouldn't call myself a uh, senior programmer. I'd call myself a dangerous junior programmer in that in that I've been doing a lot of audio. And then there's times where someone will say, hey, we don't have time to do this. Can you build this? And I'll jump in and do it. But I have not done that yet for Stern. It's just been, I would say, external tool support and maybe some consulting on maybe how things have been built. But I, I let the pinball experts uh, handle that. Gotcha. When you're talking about those Game Boy Color games, were like, maybe did you, you did the entire game of like 1942 and then like you and one other guy did the entire NFL Blitz game? Yes. So it was funny. We, we, uh, my friend and I, we had stumbled upon, I stumbled in air quotes, upon a, uh, a Game Boy, an original Game Boy development manual and software. You know, we found it on the internet. We built 
a cartridge that we could flash and we started to, to go to uh, CES and E3 had just started the E3 show. So we were going to those shows and basically cold calling the two or three remaining companies that were making Game Boy games. Everybody else had stopped really making Game Boy games, but we were so lucky that unknown to everybody else, Nintendo decided we're going to release the Game Boy Color. And all of a sudden, all these companies like Midway and Activision and all these companies are looking for Game Boy programmers and they're all gone. So we were part of like a handful of people who knew how to program for Game Boy. So all of a sudden we were getting all these games and they were getting so many games, digital clips at this time, that they would go to different people and they came to me and said, do you want to do 1942? And I said, well, that looks simple enough, which was a absolute mistake. It was not <laughs> simple enough. And uh, I still remember I was flying out to the office and the other programmer I was flying out with was teaching me Z80 assembly on the plane <laughs> while we were flying there. So, Oh my God, that, that is amazing. Well, I guess you got, you finally, you got it done. So that that's the silver lining here, but it was, a, it was, yeah, a just, just don't, just don't look at it. Don't go, <laughs> don't go with a critical eye there. <laughs> I'm going to go download it on an emulator when we're done. <laughs> but, uh, okay. So back to pinball. Here we go. Uh, so after kiss, we, uh, we dive into Aerosmith. Yeah. And that one, uh, I was a little more comfortable. I had kind of built the tool set there. That was an interesting one because it was my first time I worked with, uh, Brendan, uh, small. Oh, he was on Aerosmith. Um, That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. He did the Jackie voice. Okay. And, you know, I, I, I went from editing a bunch of Kiss VO to hit, which his stuff is always cracks me. Oh up. yeah. He's hilarious. Uh, but there was also the, uh, the changeover. So Kiss had the, uh, dot. And Aerosmith was the first one I worked on that had the LED screen. So there was some growing pains there in terms of getting all that stuff to work and the, the new hardware and that stuff. And the idea that you would make these more complex sound effects for these display sequences. So that was kind of the beginning of that. Interesting. For, uh, for me, anyway. So how much of, like, you know, did you just get files from Brendan Small to, you know, to kind of put in into the game or did you do any recording? Uh, I was wondering, I always wonder on like certain projects if, if you were handling some of that as well. He really is just kind of a genius in terms of all the things he can do. And so he asked me, what format do you want it in? How do you want it recorded? Do you want it compressed before? I gave him the specs. I got uh, files back and they were nearly ready to go. I, I do some post-production on, on them just to, get them to sound better in the mix there. But essentially he delivered a near final product himself. He's got a, you know, he records all that music for his shows, So he's got a, full uh, studio. a decent, yeah. 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 So he's all set for that. Right. Yeah. That, that's amazing. So they, they kind of had the call outs they wanted, shot them over, he recorded them. And then once, once he records them, do you put them in the software or, you know, do you kind of arrange them in the mix somehow? Yeah. So usually uh, what the process is, is I take however the files come, I post-process if there's any, he will, and most places will deliver multiple takes of a line. That's just kind of a standard for uh, TV, video games, or any kind of thing. Uh, so you have a choice or you can have multiple reads of a line. And if there's like pops on the microphone or noise, 
I'll do noise reduction. I'll do an EQ and a compression pass to make sure all of the lines that we're using are uh, per perceptively the same volume. And uh, from there, then you start putting them in the game. And until you, until you kind of trigger them and let them sit in there, you don't know how they're going to sit in the mix. Mm. Uh, and it's kind of an interesting thing because a line that you really love just might kind of die when it's on the table just because of the read or the way the words hit. It just kind of gets buried in there. So th there's tricks you can do to fix that. But until you kind of live with those VO calls, you can't really fully say you've you've mixed it. So we do a preliminary mix at first to put them in, and then you just start picking pieces that maybe don't work that you need to boost or you need to take out and abandon or use different ones. So do they send you like a white wood or how would, you know, how would you be able to kind of experience it in real time on a pinball machine? Um, is, is it something you just kind of play out or, or run it back? Or if you hit this, you kind of see how it, it lands with the music itself or, yeah, so I I do get Whitewoods. Um, oh, great! Yeah, yeah, I actually have, and it's funny. It's it's you know they're machines that uh, probably have some dents and scratches. You know that they're not going to ship out. They basically, you know, the developed machines are are workhorses. So I would get a Whitewood and basically build from source and be able to put in sounds and audition them pretty quickly afterwards. And, you know, you kind of, part of the mix process is, you know, playing at different volumes, playing with the EQ curves. Sometimes, you know, if I have enough room in my, uh, my studio is not too big here, but I'll move the machine around just to hear how it's going to play or take some of the soundproofing off to, to hear how it sounds if it's echoing off the walls. So there's a lot of, uh, wow. yeah, there's a lot of things you do and it's just kind of a living, what you would call a living mix. You, you just start putting content in there. You see how it plays. You see how it sounds in a room. You, you try to, some of it's guessing. Some of it is you just actually physically hear what's not working. And, and you just kind of got to do your best as the game uh, development progresses to, to, to make sure everything is uh, sounding good. Yeah. There's, you know, looking over the list of games and so many of them are music pins. I feel like, you know, a lot of people would think the music pins would be easier because you have all these songs to go off of. But it's like, how do you. It, to me, it would almost be harder because you're having you don't want to interrupt the jam of, you know, of a rock song or like, you know, with a with a call out or a noise that's too grating. But you also need the player's attention if if this is happening is, is an alert. Do you feel it would, it would it's easier or harder doing these music pins? I, I would say, well, I'm going to be biased here, but I think it's harder just for that very reason. Uh, you know, I've worked on video games where with licensed and unlicensed music. And when you're in control of the music and the sound, what I mean is from a creation standpoint, uh, it's a lot easier, especially if it's uh, music nobody's really heard before. Right. You can kind of do that. But yeah, these music games, there is a priority and everybody kind of agrees. The priority is the, is the music there. But yes, when you have a, a sound that you want kind of to use as a signal and cut through, you've got to be careful the way you design it. There's definitely, I would say, it's still a learning process for me. There's sounds that when I'm designing them, I think they're going to work a certain way. And then when I put them in the game, they just fall flat or they're just too loud or too annoying. They just don't play right. So it's a lot of uh, revisions. 
and a lot of uh, changes that way. But the focus always is, and I think always should be on kind of putting the the music first and the band first. Yeah, I, the the more I think about it, I, I was thinking about that on the way home. I was like, man, that you know, you may may not have to generate as much content, but the trial and error of of the content you're making and overlaying that on top of the songs that people are wanting to hear that, that revision meant would take forever. Like I, I could just imagine, like I would second guess myself to the end of time doing this, you know? <laughs> well, and then there's a further complication because you have IP holders, you have band members who are smart about audio. So when they listen to a mix, they have their own opinions about uh, the way things are playing. So you have to take that into consideration as well. Um, because, you know, some bands want their music front and center. They don't want to, they don't want to even hear the VO or they're, maybe they're not familiar enough with pinball to really understand, you know, the role of all these different sounds. So yeah, it's a balancing act. Yeah. Did you get any dirty letters from like Gene Simmons or, uh, Paul Stanley or Joe Perry? (laughs) They were surprisingly hands off. Uh, I will say that, and this is, uh, this is third person information because I really don't know any inside dirt on it. But from my knowledge, I think they care mostly about how they look <laughs> on the illustrations of the table. That seems to be the common yeah. thread. They're like, no, my nose isn't that big or I, you know, my hair doesn't look like that. And they, they do that. But no, Gene Simmons was, uh, didn't really have any input on audio. I did on Led Zeppelin. It was funny because we sent a demo just for them to check. You know, that's a normal thing as you're building the game. You're just sending the the rights holders kind of videos or demos of what you're working on. And I had not mixed this part of the game yet, but I did it and it was just too late for me to really fix it. And uh, Jimmy Page's uh, camp said, ah, this isn't mixed right. I was like, oh my God, he, he picked that out immediately. Wow. And I was bummed for uh, a little bit, and then I thought, no, I, I don't have to tell anybody what happened. I can just say, yeah, I worked with Jimmy Page. He gave me exactly. some, some good feedback. Yeah. <laughs> I think I can't remember which album it was, if it was Houses of the Holy or, um, yeah, it was, it was either that one or it was one of the later Zeppelin records, and um, I don't think it was uh, Physical Graffiti, but I, I, I know they recorded the album, and he mixed it in like, two or three days like he needed an extra day in the studio and the rolling stones were doing the studio like the next day and uh they were like oh did did you get you know the tracks laid down he was like no the album's done like there it is (laughs) like so i I, i'm assuming he probably knows his way around a mixing table well i was surprised i didn't find out until recent years of how many uncredited like session sessions he did like where he's a guitarist on a uh, a famous record and I'm going to forget some immediate ones, but he was doing a lot of uh, uncredited guitar work on a lot of popular songs. Like he's, it was a studio guy for a while before. Yeah, I think before the, Led Zeppelin. Was it before the Yardbirds. Yeah. 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 He was, he was a session player. Yeah. That's super. That's, that's crazy. That's a great story. Yeah. I worked with Jimmy Page. He, uh, <laughs> so, um, after Aerosmith, we had, uh, we had Deadpool and this game has become like beloved. I mean, you, they can't make enough Deadpools. If they just stopped right now and made Deadpools for the next three months, I think they would all be sold. <laughs> so let, let's talk about Deadpool. It has a really fun soundtrack, a lot of different things going on. What all did you do on Deadpool? So I kind of came in at the end there. They uh, 
they needed, Tanyo needed some specific, again, Tanyo comes in here. Uh, they were in a time crunch and there were some, you know, it's, it's kind of got that 16 bit, eight bit flavor there on some of the, the display effects. Yeah. And, and Tanyo needed some like genuinely generated, like eight bit sound. And he knew I had the hardware and the knowledge to generate that stuff. You know, we had a good rapport of like, he knew what he wanted. He could explain it and I could generate it. So I started doing that. I started, and I actually started processing, um, samples for like some of the fighting stuff. I would pump it through some original hardware, actually like downsample it through video game hardware. So it had that real downsampled sound. And then it just kind of went from there whenever they needed a sound. So I was just kind of, kind of clean up, I would say on just missing sounds they needed. One thing I did do, which I snuck in, I was so happy about was the, uh, uh, Ninja apocalypse stinger. I did the VO for that. So I'm, I'm kind of excited that I did, I did the little, uh, the little eight bit music for it. And then when the, uh, the voice says Ninja apocalypse, that's me. So, uh, I just wanted to get more than just a, uh, you know, just sound in there, my voice, so I could play the game. And then show my kids, look, your dad's in the, in the pinball. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Next time I get there, I'll, I'll be like, there's Bob. It's <laughs> awesome. I mean, really, you did all of Kiss, all of Aerosmith, helped him finish out Deadpool. Online, really, the first uh, lead project I see your name on was Led Zeppelin. But it sounds like Kiss and Aerosmith really were. <laughs> well, I would say Led Zeppelin's the one I, fir- I first felt completely like they gave me control of the sound package entirely. Not that Lonnie or anybody else didn't say, do what you need to do, but they were, I think they were more confident in my ability to uh, just kind of run on my own and design a sound package um, from scratch. And, and that's kind of where, what I did. I, I kind of proposed the idea of that, you know, Led Zeppelin's this kind of magical fantasy type band there. I mean, at least in terms of what they sing about and the, you know, the kind of era there. So the idea was like the sound package is going to have a lot of kind of more magical and uh, fantasy type sounds, special seventies kind of thing. It, it starts like with the album art, almost this kind of like magical worlds you stare at when you had the, the album. Art. Yeah. Were, were you a big fan of Zeppelin or? Yes. So Zeppelin was a huge part of me growing up. I kind of came to them late, but it was like Beatles, Led Zeppelin. In fact, Houses of the Holy was the first album, well, I should say cassette, that I actually rode my bike up to the store and used my own money to, wow. to buy that tape and just just destroyed that tape <laughs> with playing it so much. And that was kind of, I uh, started out playing guitar when I started music, and that was kind of the, the impetus of that, of like, oh, I want to play guitar, I want to be like Jimmy Page. Yeah, like so many other people. Um by the time I started playing, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses was all over MTV. And I, I remember I wanted a drum set, but um, I saw the November Rain video and Slash was on the piano with the Les Paul. And I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just ditch the drums now. I got to, you know, find a Les Paul. So, you know, this they, they've got you on your own. Stern's really good about this. They, they kind of get your feet wet a little bit. And then they, you know, they're like, he's got it. Boom, let's go. You know, Jerry Thompson came in like with Ghostbusters and, and, and people love Jerry and Ken Hale over there. Was there any pressure to like, okay, this is all on me now, you know, to do this whole sound package? Yeah, definitely. And and like I said, I feel like I'm still learning my way around pinball. There's so many people that are 
you know, that have been at it for so long and they're so great. And, and Jerry and Ken, I, I haven't gotten to work with Ken directly, but Jerry, I, I email and I've talked to him and everybody is so helpful there. It's like everybody is cheering everybody else on to just make something really cool. So we've been able to share tech and share all these things. And I've had nothing but uh, great experiences, which made it so much easier because in my own head, I definitely was thinking, oh, I've, I've really got to deliver on this. Uh, you know, if I want to keep working for Stern, and I think delivery you did because I, I don't own a Zeppelin, but there's one on location that another friend has here, and man, is is you know, it really feels like, like you were saying that kind of, it nails that error, like all the sounds, and and the one I noted was you know that electric magic spinner. It's like here's this really cool mech. And the charge up sound is different from like the frenzy multi-ball sound when you hit the spinner itself. And uh, it's, it's just so gratifying. Both sounds are really good, but when you notice there's a difference between the two sounds, it's, it, it really kind of opens your eyes to the, the magic of that. Oh, I, I appreciate that because I will tell you something. The bane of my existence right now on pinball is spinner sound. Oh man, you've got them down already. Uh, we'll get to that oh, on rush I- here, but um. Yeah, and, and let me ask you this on the spinner sound. How hard is it to get the RPM of the spinner and and how the, the notes go faster or, or go slower? Is that difficult to do? It is difficult, and that's that's kind of what, what I mean by the bane of my existence here because I, I will have an idea in my head, and just because of how long I've been doing video games and everything, the, the path from idea in my head to a product is generally pretty easy. I mean, there's going to be revisions, there's going to be missteps, but there must have been at least 10 to 15 different revisions on that spinner sound, uh, different approaches, like wildly different things. And I had just about given up before I got to that last one. And thankfully, uh, Tim and uh, I believe Raymond help out on that one, but just kind of were, were working with me to get the spinning, like getting a limiting on the amount of spinning and how we pitch things up. And exactly, we kind of built a table, a lookup table that would traverse these samples. So you would get that kind of pitch curve. Uh, it took a lot of work and they helped quite a bit on that, but it's still, I'm probably psyched myself out now on spinners because every time i have a spinner sound i'm like it oh, has boy, to be not as good again. as that one okay i'm just right. telling you right now no uh no t- tim and uh and raymond are both phenomenal players and and they've played so many different games they know a great spinner sound every pinball player when they hear a good one they're like oh that's that's it that's a great it's so satisfying you know when when you get a great spinner sound but not only that you know some of your your target sounds. something i've noticed maybe between the two if you hit like a uh, a ramp or an orbit, you don't stay in the same like kind of sound realm or even the same pitch level. You almost use more of like a whooshing sound or like a turbo like whoosh sound. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. Is that kind of conveying the motion of the ball and, and and getting that out? Yeah, and I really wanted something that kind of kind of spreads across the sound field there because of the thing we discussed where you're focusing on music and you want that there's certain opportunities i want to take in the sound effects that won't necessarily step all over the music but it can provide kind of a a sound bed underneath that at least gives you some satisfaction and like you said a sense of motion when you bring the ball there so i kind of fell in love with that that idea of these long whooshes with uh 
with really complex things underneath. And, uh, you know, my, my thought is like, hopefully people are listening and maybe they hear something different each time they hear it kind of just a little piece. Yeah. I think that's accurate. Uh, especially uh, when we get to rush, we'll, we'll go into that a little more, but it's interesting. Like it's so hard to describe a sound like, as a guitar player, if, if you're trying to describe like a, 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 you know, a Les Paul through a Marshall, it's like, well, it just has that sound, you know, or like, you know, like edges delay sound in U2. It's like, Oh, it's that like 32nd note. Like it's just that delay sound. You can almost describe it better by describing the track or the person, but it's like, how do you convey certain feelings through a sound? And, and, and how do you land on that? Like, well, this, this would be a good target sound, or this would be a good, you know, drain sound or, or whatever it may be. Yeah. That's a tough one because I've been doing it for long enough where I don't know if, if I'm not talking to somebody about it, I don't really have a language for it. <laughs> right. Um, I just kind of know what I want it to sound like. And so I'll play the game and I'll think on it and I'll think about the overall theme I'm going for. Like just as an example, a contrast for Led Zeppelin was more fantasy rush I wanted a kind of a higher tech sound. I wanted it to tie into the time machine idea and the more kind of synth sounds that uh, Getty was using on all the albums. Like, you know, I was taking, I was taking emulations of like mini Moogs and Jupiter eights and some of the hardware he was using on the albums. And I was trying to generate these synth pulses and laser sounds like that to kind of give that feeling of almost to kind of, be another instrument of the music where it was like it fit it fit in that yeah. range of music and, and now that you mentioned especially on rush i'm not sure what you used on the rush targets but it's I, I can't describe it it's it's something i've really never heard in a pinball machine but clearly some of those noises you kind of move the the pitch up that way it's not riding in that zone of where the music normally is with a band like rush it's almost like it catches your attention you know you hit the target and it's gone Right, right. Yeah, there was a idea on that one to, like you said, kind of like pop above the music. And I've also was playing on that one with adding really low end to kind of just give an extra pulse with the actual hardware hit sound. I'm just, I'm still experimenting with that stuff. And there's going to be some revisions on uh, not necessarily those target ones, but I'm I'm still kind of playing with that. It it always happens. I, I commit to something. We live with it a while. People seem to like it. And then I go back to it and go, nah, <laughs> nah, I could do better. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, you know, any good, uh, I think, artist or coder, no matter what it is, it's like you you always think you could probably go, you could make it better. But at some point you have to say, you know what, it's it's really, really good. It's good enough. And if I get time one right. day, you know, I'll go back. But so one last thing on Led Zeppelin, we, we see Brendan Smalls back again, right? Doing voiceover. Yep. How was it working with him again? I mean, is it just always like pro level or? It really is. He was working on uh, a pitch for, uh, you know, a TV show or something. You know, he's got all kinds of stuff going on. But in between that, we basically sent him a script. Less than a week later, I've got the files and it's, you know, it's perfect. And it was funny on that one. We were having a little trouble convincing the Led Zeppelin camps that, that you even needed VO for the game. They just don't really have, some of these bands don't have the background in pinball or at least modern pinball. So they don't really understand why, why is there even a voice in this? He's a, he's such a pro. He did two reads. He did two different characters. And then he, then we decided on the idea. He did a, a set of revisions for us where 
it would be kind of one character, but then he'd based on the mood, he'd ramp it up and, and do a different read, but it was kind of this. And I think Robert Plant is the one who liked it most. This kind of stayed almost droll, uh, British voice for some of the reads, especially some of the lower energy stuff. You can kind of, you get this very standard British. I'm sorry. I don't know the actual breakdown of the accent there. Uh, is it one of those things with Zeppelin where it's, was it hard to work with the band or, you know, they just weren't really that interested. It's like, cool. They're making a pinball machine, but you know, whatever. I always feel some sympathy for these bands because there's lots of layers and understandably. So I don't know if protecting is the right word, but protecting them, they they get, and especially Led Zeppelin's notorious for this, for not licensing a lot of things out. I'm sure they get daily just so many requests that don't even make it to the band right. because their lawyers and their managers say, yeah, they're never going to be for this. So I was surprised the amount of access we got to them and the amount of feedback. It just, I think it just took a little bit for them to trust Stern and to trust a company that was not going to tarnish their image, so to speak. Sure. And so it just took a little bit back and forth and Stern, they're, they're licensing people and everybody there are just so such pros at that. They just navigated that perfectly. I rarely have any direct interaction with them. That changed a little on Rush, but you know, especially if with the VO being done, not by any of the band members. So it's, uh, I kind of get thankfully shielded from that. <laughs> right. Well, while we've been, you know, a lot of the listeners are probably saying, who the hell is Brendan Small? And I've noticed, you know, I was a fan of home movies and Metalocalypse, his shows and uh, the band Death Clock. But do you know how that relationship came about? Why, you know, how Brendan Small got involved with Stern or? I don't exactly know. I know that he loves pinball. I know that he knows somebody at Stern and I don't know if that's through pinball or he knew somebody in that. I don't know that relationship, yeah. but there is a strong relationship there. It was obviously there before I got to Stern, but they love him. He's so reliable. Right. That's the thing about Stern. If, if you are reliable enough and you can kind of run on your own and technically capable, you just do great there because everybody, you fit into that machine so well. Right. And, uh, Brendan does perfectly that way. Yeah. He just, you know, send him us. And of course it, it helps. Like you said that he's done, uh, these shows, these cartoon shows. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, I mean, it's it, not only is he a world-class guitar player, but I mean, he just, he understands the animation aspect, the comedy, everything. And I, I got to see death clock early on. And if, if you're not familiar, go watch the show metalocalypse. It's a parody on like really heavy death metal bands and, yeah, so I went to go see them live, and I my jaw hit the floor because the band that toured with him for Death Clock are all world class players. Like Mike <laughs> Keneally is the other yeah. guitar player, and I was like, oh my god! Like I seen him with Steve Vai and like Joe Satriani and like you know uh, Gene Hoagland's on drums. I was like, oh, I had no idea. You know, the touring band was like all A listers too. So that was a, a just a mind blowing thing. You know that wow he must be super well-respected because he, he had all these A-listers playing with him. Yeah, he definitely, I mean, he has the chops. He has everything to back it up. So it's just a, a multi-talent. It's always just fun working with him. And I definitely, I, he's had to have pitched it, but I don't know why there isn't a Metalocalypse uh, p pinball game. There should be. I one. think it's, it's the fact of it's just not popular enough to move the units. You know, it, it would probably have to be like a special studio 
run game, you know, low numbers like they did for like um, heavy metal or something like that. But well, me, you, and Brendan will buy one. Oh my god, yeah, I would, I would <laughs> buy one in a heartbeat. Just yeah, fall oh, man. So if you're listening to this, go check out some of Brendan's small stuff. And and de- even if you just want a sample of it, go to YouTube and watch some of his guitar tutorials. You'll be like, you melt your face off, you know? Well, that brings us to the most recent game. And as fate would have it, I actually received my pro to go on route today. Uh, and that's rush pinball. And I am a massive rush fan. And I was going to ask you, do you like rush? Well, here's where I, I disappoint you a little. I love rush, but Rush hit me in a time in my life where I took a really hard pivot soon after into heavy metal and skateboarding culture. So I went like heavy metal and punk, but, um, I was kind of around like a Detroit radio at, at the very least was, you know, still playing, uh, permanent waves, moving picture signals, all these, you know, limelight spirit of radio, all these radio right. hits. So I would say my Unfortunately, I'm a bit of a poser because my main knowledge of Rush before this game was the radio hits. Sure. I mean, I knew about the other songs, but I hadn't really dived deep into them. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't actually get into them till a good bit later. Uh, I was. I was much like you. I. I was uh, skateboarding and playing in bands, and I was mostly into metal and punk. And as I started playing more like my first band kind of dissolved and I, I just started jamming with some, some older guys that were really, really good. And they were, you know, they were like, what do you mean? You don't listen to rush. Like, it's no wonder, it's no wonder you suck. If you listen to rush, you know, you'd be way better. And I was like, ah, oh, what are they talking about? So I, I, I went digging through, um, you know, some, some cassettes I had tapes early on, you know, I, I went to a flea market when I was a kid, all I had was a Walkman and I bought, you know, just some random rock tapes and, one of them was Permanent Waves. And I hadn't listened to it in like, you know, five or six years. And obviously when you're a teenager, you're expanding and, you know, into adulthood, your your palate's changing. And also in that same box was uh, Iron Maiden's um, Peace of Mind. So I, I, yeah. I gravitated more to that earlier. <laughs> but so, so I come <laughs> back to Rush and I, I'm like, okay, yeah, it's pretty good. And, uh, and then I, I just realized, you know, how wide their discography is. I mean, you know, by the time you get to signals and power windows and grace under pressure, it's just, you know, it just gets so much different. And, and then later on, they actually kind of got even heavier, especially the last album. If you had to pick a favorite rush album, which would it be? Boy, it might be, oh boy, it might be moving pictures just because that was, you know, it's, it's always like the older brother who has something, which is how I got into Led Zeppelin. It's how I got into Rush and some of the others and then pivoted to a, an unfortunate hairband, <laughs> which was like Motley Crue, Twisted Sister, Def Leppard. But then when Metallica hit, it was just, you know, off on a tangent there. But yeah, I guess I would say Moving Pictures then, because that's the one I remember. Well, it's still that's a the one I have, perfect album. Yeah, I mean, it really is. You know, it's just amazing. Even though you're so I'll move to the next question, but you know, even though you're not a monster rush fan, I'm sure you've listened to more of their discography making the game. Do you think there's one of their albums that's, that's vastly underrated? Um, boy, I don't know if I feel comfortable like saying, because I haven't listened to everything, right. but I, I'm kind of surprised that people don't like, um, uh, roll the bones yep. as much as that's surprising to me. Cause I, I like that yeah. album. I used to collect a lot of records and things like that. And anytime I go into a used record store, 
the, there would always there only be like one Rush album in the used bins, and it would always be Grace Under Pressure. And I was like, this album is phenomenal. <laughs> like, it's really good if you if you don't mind the more new wave synth pop stuff, you know. Yeah, I was always just kind of like, man, it's also a really cool cover. Like, I was yeah. always surprised it was in the the used bin. Well, and it was like, they got made fun of, at least here in local radio, for that. Like, all the old Rush fans didn't like the sound of it. Okay, I, yeah. I liked it. I, ju- I don't know. That that would be my only... I'm sure there's other ones that are underrated. I've The good thing is that by working on this game, I've definitely kind of kicked myself for not diving deeper on these things so yeah. i think that's going to be the my kind of side project for the next uh several months is just kind of dive deeper into this stuff because my son plays drums he's 13 and he's just starting out but he's really getting into he was really into metal and i've kind of just been steering him <laughs> out of the direction i went into he said buddy you got to listen to some you know some wider things and he's, he's getting into rush. So I think it'll be something we both kind of dive into. That's cool. Yeah. I, I'm, I was really happy when I saw the LE art package because I, I loved clockwork angels, the last album. And I, I think I saw that tour like three times and Oh wow. Yeah. I got lucky because like the first year they went around, like they hit North Carolina once and then the next year once and I, and then one in Atlanta. So I was like, bam, 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 you know, it was just a <laughs> phenomenal tour. Um, I didn't get to see him the first time till uh, uh, Vapor Trails, and um, but then I saw like everyone after that because I, I was just I couldn't believe three dudes could could do it all. You know, I was like, it's, it's like yep. impossible. Like, how could po- like three guys possibly pull all this off? And then when you see him do it, you're like, holy shit! <laughs> you know, it's amazing. But back to the pinball machine. Here you go again. That right opto spinner. What a what a juicy spinner sound. Did you have as much trouble with that one as you did on Led Zeppelin? Oh, I did. And I'll let you know a little secret. I hate that sound. Oh, you hate it? Well, I'm still too close to it. I'm oh, still in okay. the period where I'm like, I can't nail this. The idea I had to do it is has eluded me. And um, I'll probably come around to it. And you telling me you like it makes me feel infinitely better. Already yeah, about it. I don't know. I'll rip it some more. I, so, you know, I got the game literally today. I have some of those deliveries at work because like my house is like a pain in the ass to to deliver to. So I just have them drop it at my work because it's way easier. And I, uh-huh. I just went ahead and immediately unboxed it. And, you know, very little got done the rest of the day. And, <laughs> you know, so it's a great, great game already. You always worry when they do a dream kind of theme. And, you, you know, it's like your expectations, you, you try to keep them down because it's like, how could they possibly live up to what's in your mind of, of you know, what this game could be? And, oh, boy, man, did, did the team come together? I mean, it's like, oh, my God, I finally, you know, uh, the layout on Ghostbusters was never my favorite. And that was always one of my favorite movies. And um, but this game is just hitting on all cylinders. So it's uh, people, even people that aren't Rush fans, when they finally get to play this game, they're going to be like, wow they crushed it. One thing on the stream people kept commenting about, uh, was the, the buck eject noise. <laughs> I don't know if you've, you've heard this yet. Oh yeah. It's already, changed. I noticed that. Okay. <laughs> I was like, I'm not hearing it. And I listened to the stream and I was like, okay, there it is. But I will tell you when I listened to the stream, uh, I went and I was like, okay, I see, I see it. It is a different kind of sound effect. I don't know why it was, it was super grating for some people, but I, I went to Avengers 
and I was like on the premium, it has the buck up kick. And I was like, what does that one sound like? And it's very much like, like it's a similar kind of pattern almost, you know? And, and I was like, for some reason, you know, the, the rush one, I guess because the ball's coming in and out of there. So like more frequently they like people picked up on it. But so did you guys pull it completely or I I didn't notice what the sound effect was now. So when it was kind of like on the bubble there, we were, it was sitting in the game for a while. It was playing. Some people were ambivalent about it. I wasn't sure. I kind of wanted this mechanical and the beeping noise to be kind of like uh, machinery, like a time machine or you know any kind of stuff like that and kind of hint towards that with the synth stuff. On the stream, because of the compression, I think, it just really stood out. Mm. So when I heard it on the stream, I was like, oh, no, that does not play well. And then Tim was like, yeah, some some people are commenting on it. And I was like, I've already got a revision. <laughs> Check it out. And so it's a whole new sound. It's a different sound. And it, it seems like, and maybe it's just me, but I, I feel like in the mix on Rush, the call outs, some of the sound effects are bumped a little higher in the mix. Like I hear Getty and Alex's call outs a little more clearly than, than say maybe Brendan's on Led Zeppelin. Was that intentional because you, you thought maybe they were stronger than, than what you had or, or, or the fans would like it more? Yeah, we, so the thing about the voiceover session, it was during, you know, it's during lockdown still. So I wasn't able, they had a, a, a VO session in Toronto, which I wish I could have went to, but luckily they uh, patched us in through the internet so we could listen. And probably one of the most enjoyable sound sessions I've been a part of because those guys, uh, Alex and Getty are hilarious (laughs) and they gave so many hours. If you see that video, that promo video they did where they show, uh, them recording the VO, none of that is staged. They were the, I have, I have a bunch of extra VO with We'll never make it into the game, unfortunately, but of them goofing around and making fun of lines oh my and gosh. misreads and bloopers. And they're just high energy the whole time. They were doing alternate reads with like kind of more inside rush stuff that we ended up using, you know, that we couldn't have written. They just kind of riffed on them and improvised. And it was just fantastic. And and Ed Robertson, the the guy from Bare Naked Ladies, he directed it and just got so much great stuff out of that. And we were so lucky that he's a, a pinball fan because uh, I'm not sure the VO would have came would have come out the way it did. He wasn't involved. And of course, just uh, the guys from Rush are just great. I mean, that's the stereotypical thing of Canadians, right? <laughs> but they. They kind of proved it there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if there's any way that that extra stuff could sneak out, uh, <laughs> uh, the email address is mtmpinball at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear it. But yeah, no, the, the one call out that every time I hear it, I crack up as uh, like a friend that owes you money. <laughs> you know, or, yeah, 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 that one always cracks me up. There's a lot of really good ones in there. And there's obviously more cool kind of laser synth noises and turbo whooshing kind of noises, like I mentioned before, but I feel like on rush, it really, they're riding perfectly in the the mix to where I'm fully hearing the songs, the sound package, but you get that excitement from hitting a shot, you know, and, and it really comes through. You're getting the pinball feedback you want, but also not losing the magic of, of the music. 
how much time was spent on on layering that in? And I'm sure you're not maybe one thousand percent done, but was it was Rush more difficult, uh, being that you had so many callouts and and different things like that than Led Zeppelin? Uh, definitely. Is it definitely harder? It's definitely still in progress. We spent a lot of time on that, and there was a lot of different opinions on it. Um, we tried a, a bunch of different ducking techniques, and we're still kind of playing with that. What I'd like to do in the future, you know, this is kind of one of those future dream projects is to kind of introduce something we've been doing in video games for a while, which is kind of a dynamic mixing where you do ducking based on frequencies, not just volumes, but you, you know, kind of do a more dynamic mix. The problem with that is it's very CPU intensive. Mm. So that, like I say, it's kind of a dream thing, but for Rush, it's kind of like just a balancing act where you're trying to get everything... Again, the music is the main star of this. You also want to give fans and players the the joy of all the VO that's been recorded. The difference with Led Zeppelin is we had such a small amount of callouts compared to like Rush or any other game that that you just want you just want to be able to hear them. You want people to be able to enjoy that stuff. And then the sound effects, yeah, I really wanted those laser sounds and some of the other stuff to cut through. And you know, I was trying to recreate patches from synth patches from some of the more famous songs and sneak them into the, some of the display sound effects. Right. And uh, so that's all competing. That's all competing for headroom. You don't have a ton of, I mean, the speakers are good, but you don't have control of a mix. Like you might, when you, when you mix for video games, they always say you do a mix for a five, one or a seven, one system. And then you also mix for, uh, tiny TV speakers. You know, you just want to make sure it sounds good on a range of things from the top end to the bottom. This is fixed hardware. I mean, based on the speaker systems, but it's still so difficult to compete with everything in the game and then the actual mechanical sounds of the game. And then also not being able to control where this machine is, whether it's in a home or it's in a noisy bar with 10 other pinball games. So yeah, th that's another thing where I still struggle and I say, oh, I should have mixed this different. And I kind of do a different in every every game, but I would still say it's still in process, but I am glad to hear you're hearing some of the goals that we're, we're aiming for. Yeah, I think you're really, really close. I mean, to it's hard to, it's hard to, you know, as a somebody that has recorded music and done things like that to, I wouldn't even know where to begin with this and, uh, and, and to critique it is way out of my <laughs> range, but you know, it just as a pinball player and listening to it and enjoying the game, I'm, I'm like, you know, well, what would I change? Would I change this? But, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, the more I play it, the more I like it. So that's, that's always a good sign that, you know, normally, you know, when you, there's a honeymoon phase when you first get a game, but I was really today trying to focus on the sound because I knew we were going to be talking and, and the mix and, and the different effects that are, that are happening. And, uh, the more I really honed in on it, the more I, I liked it, you know, the more I, I enjoyed it. So I think, uh, my LE should be here next month. I'm actually going to put the headphone adapter on it because I, I want to like really take it all in. Oh, excellent. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. It, like I said, I still, even though I've worked on this many games, I still feel like I'm just scratching the surface of, of kind of the language of sound on pinball. And even though I've gotten support from people who have done sound for pinball and, you know, all the engineers and everything, it's just kind of a, a unspoken art for a lot of this stuff. And you've really got to just go as a 
sound designer, you got to go in and you've got to create and you've got to make mistakes. You've got to learn, you know, what people like, what you like. A lot of times I'll do something and it just does not hit with the rest of the team. And, you know, I could explain till I'm blue in the face of like why I think, you know, it should go this way. But if there's five other people who say this doesn't sound right and they can't even explain why it sounds (laughs) right, it doesn't matter because it doesn't sound right. It might mean that I've lived with the sound too long and I'm hearing it in a different way, but that means I have to go back and say, well, I'm wrong. I got to change it and figure out exactly, you know, where I went wrong. Right. Would you have any interest in, I mean, are you officially like the rock band sound guy for Stern or would you have interest in doing like a full composition for, you know, like a, a Marvel game or something? Yeah, I would, you know, I would be perfectly happy being the official, uh, uh, rock band guy for there. And I, I'll say that in the hopes that maybe it'll just come true if I keep saying it, but, uh, I would be fine with anything. I've, I've fallen in love with pinball from somebody who didn't play pinball. And now I just have a, a huge respect for not only the, the, the mechanical, the, the engineering, the process of development, but the community itself is just amazing. Uh, you, you're familiar with video game community, and I, I love that, but there's so much uh, toxicity in there from just a bigger audience. And of course. I've been to, you know, launch parties and competitions and stuff and just met some fantastic people, and they've been great to my kids, and they've, you know, helped them learn to play better because I'm, I'm not a great player <laughs> yet. But it's it's just been a wonderful experience. So honestly... Rock band stuff would be great if they gave me, you know, the Paula Deen cooking pinball table. I'd gladly do that too because I just, you know, I just like working on pinball games now. If if you get the Paula Deen game, can you make the spinner uh-huh. sound? Just be like butter, 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 like <laughs> just more butter. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, but actually, just go ahead and make that sound effect. Send it to me because that's going to be like the intro to all my shows from now on. <laughs> A butter, yeah, spinner. butter spinner, butter, 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 butter. Yeah, that's what I need. Is there anything that you you wanted to put into any of the games that maybe the the hardware just couldn't do, or uh, you know, maybe you had an idea that just had to get scrapped that you're like, you know, I'm going to bring that back at some point. There is an idea I have for pinball games in general, hardware wise, and I can't tell you because they might do it, and I know they wouldn't be happy. If I <laughs> no, yeah, let's it. let's not um, violate any NDAs here. Okay, let's not let's right, not do that exactly. I'm so excited that that you're part of the the Stern team now. I mean, they, they just have the best, uh, just an incredible roster, just top to bottom in that that whole organization. I, every time I get to talk to one of you guys, it's just a, a pleasure. And I hope to see you on more and more games because I, I think, you know, as hard as these rock band games are, it seems like you're up to the challenge and and uh, you're just getting better with every one of them. Uh, it was was any of the tech you developed incorporated into the expression lighting system? Yes, there's some kind of crossover there. There's a couple technologies there, but yeah, it's it's that's part of it. If you can have a system where the music can, or I, I should say the machine code can say, hey, where are we in the song? You know, uh, and you can basically tell it anything. Where are we in the song? Are we in the verse? Are we in the chorus? Uh, what beat in this measure are we in? What measure are we in? What's the BPM? You can do all kinds of stuff like schedule a light. Like if you could wait 120 milliseconds to ping a light, then perceptively 
you know, you might not be able to say why you like it, but you know, lights blinking in, uh, and light shows kind of going in time with the music just is, is satisfying. And that's kind of what we did also in Led Zeppelin is like a sound effect might have, might be like a multi-channel sound effect that has multiple pitches, multiple versions of a sound effect with different pitches. And depending on where you are in the song, it will actually play a pitch appropriate sound effect. Wow. Yeah. And I'm just, I can't wait to see this LE because like when Far Cry kicks in, you know, you know, I want to see the lights just exploding. Um, Right. Yeah. I, I hope that's in there. Yeah, they. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's incremental, but it just it gets better and better each revision. I get excited every time I make some outlandish suggestion, <laughs> and they're like, "Yeah, we could probably do that." Yeah, yeah. It seems like nothing's off the table, you know. If if uh, they can fit it into the time, you know, obviously they're everything's on a timeline. But you know, if they can, if they think it can pull it off, they do it, which is which is really cool. What if you could do any band? What would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, let's see, you know, oddly enough, I haven't really thought of that. It it would have been Led Zeppelin. And when they approached me about Led Zeppelin, I was, I just, I lost my mind. (laughs) I was like, that would be the one to do, but I would love, you know, there's no market for this. I would love to work on a black flag one, or maybe, you know, just some of these old punk bands. Can you imagine the Henry Rollins call outs? Uh, <laughs> right exactly I mean, it would and be he, amazing <laughs> yeah he's done so much spoken word he'd be perfect for it he'd be down for that. yeah uh, yeah I, I think you and vinicor would get along quite well if if you already haven't you know with with the punk stuff for sure i mean a misfits machine would be really cool too oh yeah that would be great i don't know if glenn would be into it he you wouldn't understand the call outs that would be the problem no, yeah. <laughs> low voice well, yeah I just be like elvis <laughs> right yeah <laughs> and then he did an Elvis record after all those years of people saying he was like the the punk rock Elvis. Right. Anything on Rush that, you know, people may not know or or any, you know, Led Zeppelin that that was kind of a cool tidbit or backstory. Boy, nothing I think of offhand that hasn't already been kind of revealed by the team. The the VO thing was the biggest one for me was because I've been in so many voiceover sessions where people just don't want to be there. Mm. They're doing the least amount, but um just know that when you play Rush, that they were so supportive, the band and everybody involved in just making this a really fun machine. And I, I do think, sound aside, whatever you think of the sound, that the game itself, is it just kind of reflects all the love that went into it from everybody at Stern and everybody uh, in the Rush camp. Yeah, I, I couldn't be happier with, I mean, when, it, when I finally saw the layout of the play field and the artwork and everything, I was like, Oh my God, I think they did it. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think they, they, they made a dream theme, you know, come true. So it's like, right. And that's, that's such a hard thing to do. It's such a tall order. Well, I do have you here. What, what is the rush target noise? Is it a synth thing? What, what is that? Uh, it's like a layered thing. So, uh, part of it, I almost don't want to tell you because then you'll listen for it, but I will tell you. I almost think it, it was almost like a cowbell, like kind of. It's an anvil sound, ah. but it's processed. It's kind of a flange on there. There's a, uh, uh, underneath there is like a light ricochet kind of tail that I stretched out. Wow. How do, how do you, that, how do you compose that? Like you're, you know, how, where do you even start with like just one noise like that? Well, if I have an idea in my head and I know what I want it to sound like, I'll usually start with an idea of like 
what do I want that sound to do? So for like a rush target, I want it to sit above the music a little bit. I want to maybe, and that was where I was experimenting with a tiny bit of sub in there that just kind of punches the mechanical part of actually hitting the target. And then, so with that recipe of like there, then I start playing with pieces and I say, okay, what would be a good transient high frequency sound there? And um, I'm sure I played with, with several metal kind of hits. I, I knew it was something metal and a hit, but I could not, I was like, it was driving me crazy. Yeah. And I wanted it to be powerful. I, I, you know, obviously they're plastic targets, but when you hit it, I wanted that like clank, like yeah. just, you know, like the hammer there, especially with some of the imagery from Rush album art and all that kind of stuff. And then that kind of spark ricochet tail there just kind of gives a little, little bit of extra sweetness on there because <laughs> just, just the clank alone is not enough. So it's, that's kind of where the synth feeling might come in from there because that's a little bit affected there yeah i just couldn't pinpoint it. i was like did he use some type of synth thing there I, I don't know like i just could not pinpoint that noise i was like i know it's something hitting but you know it was like blowing my mind where, where did you use like a moog sampler on one of the the noises where was that incorporated oh that's a good question that's um probably on the display effects whenever I could get away. And that's the trick there with that. And it's kind of where the, the, the pitch aware system came from is that we wanted not just uh, non-musical sound effects. We wanted to put some pitch stuff in there, but when you do that and you're playing, you know, a piece of music, you can't necessarily determine what key it's in, which kind of makes it sound dissident. Sometimes it doesn't fit. Sometimes it just works perfectly. Boy, I'm gonna have to actually look up when I did that because I I basically recorded a bunch of I, I'm trying to think maybe I did it in the extra ball. There's kind of like the um, Tom Sawyer. I might be wrong on this. The Tom Sawyer synth stab. Okay. Yeah. No, you I might wonder. be right. Yeah. Yeah. It's that kind of yeah. thing that I just yeah yeah it's the, the little things just hidden in there just to give it a little bit of musicality to break up uh, just the pure. Uh, atonal, what I would call atonal sound effects. So when you say display effect, you so like when that comes up on the display, you hear that sound. Yeah, it's probably better said dis display sequence. Gotcha. So when they trigger those videos, um, there's a whole nother set of of sound effects that are, that are incorporated. Yes, and that's a fun one because I get to do sync sound to like the owl flapping wings and a lot of cool whoosh sounds there there's some really fun stuff i got to do on those ones i really like uh composing those ones yeah see that's a bit of trickery as as a player because you're so focused on the play field it's so well integrated that you're hearing these things but you, you don't realize that it's not because the ball hits something it's it's because it's going in tandem with the call outs and what's happening on the display all in one cohesive package yeah, and that's kind of my design with these since Aerosmith, when I was learning to do this, when they first came out with this stuff, is to kind of get, also give a show to the people who are waiting to play or watching somebody play. And I did a lot of stereo tricks this time because the videos kind of lent themselves to that where it kind of plays with that. So the, the idea is hopefully someone watching isn't just bored if they're picking their head up and watching what's happening on the, uh, on the display on the led too. They can kind of, uh, you know, get a little audio treat there. I did lose a couple balls today because I was like, 
enamored with like the concert footage and you know like well right the rotisserie chicken background awesome you know like <laughs> zoink ball's gone yeah well i think we've covered the list bob i mean that was it was wonderful to have you on and it, anything in closing remarks i mean anything you we may have missed or uh, i didn't cover I don't think so. I, I really appreciate you having me on, and I really appreciate the response that the pinball community has given me, kind of somebody coming in new. Um, you know, I I'm, I'm definitely have the respect for this uh, community that uh, I, I want to, I kind of want to make my mark, but I want to make everybody happy with the sound and maybe do some new things that, uh, you know, ha- haven't been done before. So uh, I appreciate the feedback and the, and the uh, support everybody's given me so far. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, like any community, we, we still have our trolls, but uh, I can tell you that the vast majority of pinball people are, are awesome. They're, they're wonderful people. And, um, I, I hope the, the community stays that way and hopefully we'll see you at a pinball show. Uh, any chance you're going to be at Texas or boy, when, when is that uh, March? Yeah. into March. Maybe I was at pre COVID. I was at in Chicago for it. Since I'm in Michigan, that's a pretty oh, okay. easy jump. Yeah, but who knows? I mean, I'd love to. I've been stuck stuck in my studio for so long. Yeah, come to, to Texas Pinball Festival. We would love to to have you there, man. Um, I'm sure Ed Vanderveen, he runs that show. He would love to have you as well. All right, yeah, I'll start looking into it. That'd be great. Awesome. Well, Mr. Bob Baffy, I appreciate all your time and. Man, from a Rush fan, thank you so much for this. It's, I mean, this is really like a gift. It really is. Oh, I really appreciate it. That's that's very kind words today. And uh, yeah, I, I, I had a blast. Awesome. Well, I hope you have a great evening, Bob. And hopefully we'll see you at, at a show soon. And we can't wait to see you on the next Stern game. Are, are you already lined up? Can you tell us that? Um, there's chatter, but uh, I usually come on later. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Bob Baffy. All right, there you have it. Big, big thanks to Mr. Bob Baffy and everyone at Stern Pinball for making this possible. Send questions and comments to mtmpinball at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening. And I think I'll end this podcast with the overture from 2112. This is from a 1980 live radio broadcast. And I think it sounds pretty darn good.